We're going to be looking at the book of Acts, chapter 2, so if you want to open up there, you're, you, that'd be a great place to begin. Um, we will get to that in just a second, so let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing, what we have been doing. So typically on Sunday mornings, we just take books in the Bible, and we, we study through them. We look at them verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Every once in a while, we'll, we'll, we'll pause, and then we'll take a look at some themes and concepts and ideas that, that are biblical as well. And that's kind of what we're doing over the past, or the next five weeks, actually beginning three, three weeks ago, starting three weeks ago. We're in week number four of this, so you can do the math. We have one more week before we're going to be finished with this. And what we're looking at is what we're basically calling uh, a people and a purpose. Um, it's really the idea of the vision and values of, of who we are as, as God's people. It's not just so much kind of looking at who we are as a unique people here in San Luis Obispo. There's lots of great churches in San Luis. But really the bigger, broader question that we're trying to understand is what has God called us to do? And how has the gospel um, impacted and transformed us and who we want to be? So it's, it's goals, but also aspirational goals. Like who do we want to truly become in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done for us, in light of uh, living as responders, otherwise known as disciples to, to this God that, that loves us and gave himself for us. So what type of people do we really want to become? That's kind of what we're looking at. So uh, first slide, we'll just kind of ask a question we've looked at the past several weeks. So if you've already been here the past couple weeks, you're probably already tired of this or, and or you've memorized it. If you've never been here, um, so it's all new data for you. But um, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a junior high a teacher, and I said, well, how do you get junior hires to remember? He says, you repeat it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, so, so if, if this sounds repetitive um, and you've memorized it, then, then I've done my job. So don't judge me. I've just done my job. I'm just kidding. Um, don't be so serious. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, I've done, you know, we want to memorize this stuff because I think it's important. Um, so why, why are we doing this? Why are we looking at this stuff? One, we are doing this series because we really want to reinforce our collective sense of calling, our identity, and our motivation. What motivates us to be resurrection people, be Jesus people? What motivates us to be able to live like this? Um, And really who we are, our identity, and so on. And then secondly, to remind ourselves of the real possibilities of drift. And I've I've reiterated this over and over again the past several weeks, is is that if you do nothing, if you are not conscientiously... Um, mindful about the direction of your life, you will drift, all right? Um, I think a classic analogy that I've used many times is we are like cars that are, that are horribly out of alignment. You take your hand off the wheels and it will drift. It will drift one way or the next. That's who we are. That's simply how we are. Um, we, we do that in life. We do that with God. And so the, the, the key for us is how do we maintain um, a standing, a life of res- being resurrection people or bapti- baptized people in, in a society that's filled with all sorts of angst and anger and frustration and bitterness. Don't believe me? Just log onto Facebook and spend 30 seconds there. There are a lot of angry people. We are in a season where there are a lot of frustrated, vitriolic statements and concepts and ideas that are going out. But the point is, is that we will drift if we don't lay a hold of the gospel or more appropriately allow it and its message and the Holy Spirit's empowerment to lay a hold of us. To really truly be Jesus, people will drift. So that's the reason why we are kind of going back to this, reiterating it, rethinking it, and then hopefully praying it into our lives so that we'd be this community of people. So next slide, kind of give you a little bit of a uh, graphical detail picture of what we've been looking at. So this is kind of the image that sort of uh, depicts uh, who we want to be, kind of aspirational ideas or goals. So the very center of all this, obviously, is Jesus and the gospel. We, we want to truly be a church 
that what marks us, what distinguishes us, that, that we celebrate is Jesus and the gospel. Like, Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. Um, there is no Jesus apart from gospel. There is no gospel good news apart from Jesus. They, they are one in the same thing. We want to be a church that everything about who we are uh, at the very center of it is, is this true reality. And then outside of that or spawning off of that are these four other pillars or ideas that kind of come forth from that. So we looked first week at worship, the second week we look at training, and then today we'll be looking at the concept of community um, and or fellowship. So we have this kind of like little little slogan, which really is kind of a reiteration of um, the great commandment. It just goes something like this, that we are a community of people uh, being transformed by Jesus to love God, love others, and live on mission as participants of the gospel. Um, Jesus, for example, in the great commandment was asked, What's, what's the greatest commandment? Like, how do you summarize all these 613 laws into one synthesized concept? And Jesus says, love God, love neighbor. And so we, we would say, this is who we want to be. We want to be people that truly love God, love our neighbor, and are participants of what God's doing in this world. In fact, we, we can even reverse engineer that and ask the question, like, what's wrong with the world? Like, what's wrong with our hearts, with the world, with Facebook, with media, with our nation? What's wrong with those that are constantly getting publicized on the news? What's wrong with all of this? And I think the answer can be traced back simply. It's, it's we don't love God. We don't love our neighbor. And we've been saying it really all along. Like, everything boils down to this. Like, uh, the opposite of loving God is idolatry. The opposite of loving neighbor is, is injustice. So, so where there is injustice, where people do wrong towards other people, it's simply because they're not actively loving their neighbor. Where we as human beings stray into idolatry, in other words, worship other things, it's where we are actively turning away our hearts from, from Yahweh, from God, the one who loves us. So this is why we say that's who we want to be. We want to be this community that are being transformed by Jesus to love God, love others, and actively be part of the, the mission of making disciples. So next slide, we'll just jump right into the content and begin to uh, let God speak to us. And uh, I mentioned at the very beginning that we are taking a break from the book of Acts, but um, uh, again, I've said this past few weeks, I haven't been entirely honest about that because we have not been able to actually break away from the book of Acts because we keep going back to it over and over again because this is sort of the seminal verse that we keep returning to because it keeps reinforming our understanding of, of the church. So um, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is sort of this, uh, this passage that describes this community of Jesus people. Um, and if you're familiar at all with the storyline of the book of Acts, you know that, that Jesus, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, was a prophet, a messianic figure. Everybody followed him. Lots of people followed him. And uh, they had all sorts of hopes. Uh, he died. He was crucified. We know the story. And yet the third day he rose again from the dead. And so this whole community of people that were disillusioned, frustrated, uh, lost, sad, troubled, um, in grief, um, radically... Um, within an instant, were transformed. They became full of joy, full of hope. Um, every bit of disillusionment transformed in a sense of deep, uh, passionate hope. And uh, rather than people going astray, leaving Jerusalem, they actually came together and says, let's give ourselves to this King Jesus and serve one another. And this is what we see, Acts chapter 2, verse 2. This is the natural response of what they did. When they came in contact with the resurrected king, the one that one who in their mind was once dead, now is alive, 
uh, they, they united. They came together. And what we're told is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The word fellowship is what we'll look at here today mainly. And to the breaking of bread and to the, the prayers. This is what they did together. As they came together, they, they united and they, they fellowship. So that's the main idea, the main concept that I really want to focus on and think about together with us today. What does it mean for us as a church community of people to really devote ourselves to, to fellowship? So let's jump in and begin to take a look at this. Now, first of all, if, if you're anything like me and you're familiar with the word fellowship, uh, now I, I got saved when I was around 15 years old, almost 16. The word fellowship was one of those Christian phrases that got tossed around all the time. We're going to go fellowship at someone's house. We're going we're to go fellowship at, at the beach. We're going to go fellowship at someone's house on a barbecue. We're going to fellowship and someone's going to bring you a guitar. So fellowship, um, if, if, if you were to kind of be a fly in the wall and just based upon the usage of that word and the activity that followed, you'd basically, I, I think it'd be safe to assume that fellowship is no doubt it has something to do with food, has no doubt to do with some, at somebody's house. It might even have some music, a lot of laughter, a lot of fun. That, that's what fellowship is. It's, it's eating, it's uh, having pancakes, playing, you know, golf, going bowling, surfing. Um, we're fellowshipping. So if you or I were to use the word today and maybe perhaps say, like, I was fellowshipping. What we, that's like code, Christian code for, um, yeah, I, I went to someone's house and, and I don't know, we, we watched the movie. And had some popcorn, and uh, and, and we fellowshiped, and uh, th- th- that's that's not necessarily bad. That's not that's not, it, but it's not. It does not encompass the the breadth and the width of of the idea that is portrayed in the Book of Acts. And that's what I want to try to explore: is is what is portrayed within this language that they fellowship? What does it mean to fellowship? So that's that's the big idea I really, really want to try to tackle. And then ultimately, we'll end with the question of. What does that look like for you and I? So if, if this is what the scripture teaches about the concept of fellowship, communion or community, then, then what does that mean for you and I who are, you know, maybe going to church every once in a while or kind of on this track where maybe once every three weeks or once every five weeks we drop into church service every once in a while um, and or maybe we talk about Jesus someplace, somewhere within our lives, or maybe every once in a while we're feeling up to it, we'll pick up a Bible or read Jesus Calling or something, something to just kind of remind ourselves, that, oh, that's right, I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. But then we go back to the rest of our lives where, where Jesus doesn't play too much of a very significant role within the warp and woof of our lives. So what does community fellowship actually mean for you and I? Are you guys following so far? You guys all good? Ready to jump in? Let's do this. All right, next slide. Um, the, there's basically three words that get used, um, and they're all kind of part of the same family. It's the word uh, koinonia. Everyone say koinonia. Koinonia. Have you guys ever heard the word koinonia before? Anybody not, not heard the word koinonia? It's a very Christianized type word. It was very used, heavily used, like probably during the 70s, where people were like, let's have koinonia. And, and it's great. Um, it's, it comes from here, koinonia. It's actually a, a Greek word. Um, another word is koinas. Koinonas uh, uh, is another word that was basically used. There's, these, these words are all kind of used uh, and very similarly kind of uh, contribute to this idea of what um, is meant here. So there's at least three things to kind of think about or consider. Uh, we'll get to those in a moment. But I think these words uh, involve concepts like partnership, participation, fellowship, uh, commonality. Another one is common unity. And we get the, the other English word, community, from common unity. So when we say community, um, there's a sense of common unity. Like, that's what unites us. There's a common unity. 
But now already you can begin to see where this can be a little bit of a, a, a it can be caricatured. In other words, it's not the full robust meaning that the New Testament is trying to expound upon. Um, where again, you can, you can hang out with a bunch of people that you all are the same skin color, you are all the same, have the same taste, same hobbies, same, you know, I don't know, baseball team, and you're all like, like we have fellowship because we love all the same things. And in reality, uh, you may be throwing some chicken wings, and you're like, like we have fellowship. But, but again, that, that, may, that may not be, you might have commonality, but that may be different than what, what fellowship is. And so that's where I want to kind of begin to tackle what this looks like. So there's three things I think that kind of play into this. One is the thing that's shared in common, the thing that's shared in common by all that are involved. Now, what, what are the things that are oftentimes shared? So when you have a group of people coming together, uh, there's a bunch of things that are shared. I mean, you know, a, a common bowl of popcorn could be shared. Like, that could be the thing. But it's probably more so um, intense than that. Like, um, relationships. All right? Just think about that. Relationships. When you share commonality amongst people within a relationship, what does that mean? Well, it means sometimes sharing from the same bowl, not a popcorn, but a blessings. Right? When, when you're all sharing the same blessings, something good happens to somebody in your group, you're all, like, sharing with them. You're like, oh, yes. You just find out they're pregnant. You just found out... They're getting married. Just found out they got some sort of promotion or just found out they bought a house. You're like, yes, sharing with you. That's so awesome. But it also involves sharing in the big bowl of burdens that someone says, I just got diagnosed with, with, with cancer and I'm deeply, deeply, deeply troubled. And commonality, community says, oh my gosh, we're grieving with you. What can we do? Can we come just sit with you and not even have to offer any advice or input? Just sit next to you. Just be there by your side while you grieve and while you struggle and suffer and go through this. Can we bring you some food or, you know, whatever? Can we just take care of you? Like, it's sharing this common commonality of suffering and burdens and blessings and privileges and responsibilities. But then the second thing is uh, the person that's doing the sharing. So there's usually always somebody that comes in and is doing the sharing. It could be persons. It could be a person. But somebody is sharing. Somebody's saying, hey, I have some good news. I want to share it. I have some you know, big bowl of popcorn. I want to share it. I don't know why popcorn's on my mind. Um, but, but the idea, I'm, I'm, I have something. I have money. I want to share. I have uh, something that's really good that's happened to me. I want to share. I want to distribute it to you. And then there, thirdly, are the persons that are receiving and or benefiting from that which is, that, that which is uh, the person who's sharing. So these three things are kind of going on all simultaneously within the context of these three words that we translate as, as fellowship or commonality, uh, community, whatever. So here's a working definition, if you want just kind of a nice quick little snapshot, next slide, of, of what and how I would describe this. I would say community uh, and or fellowship, and I'm going to use these terms kind of interchangeably, Community is a, uh, it equals, is a commitment to share, okay, these three things, one's life, one's energy, and one's stuff. One's life, one's energy, and one's stuff with others. That's what community is. That, that's how the Bible describes and portrays what fellowship, koinonia, or community. So three words if you want to think about this, community, koinonia, fellowship, uh, all three of these words, synonymous, basically means this. It means the commitment, means somebody is saying, I will commit to share my life, my energy, my thought, my brain power. So if you're in a conversation with someone, it takes brain power to listen. That's, you, know, you can translate that as energy, to actually pay attention, to actually have your eyes open, and maybe even in this context, to listen to what I'm saying involves energy, brain power, 
Um, but, but then also one stuff, being able to actually say, uh, I got stuff I can, I can share. You need a shirt, I'll give you a shirt. You need money, I got some money. Uh, you need food because you don't have time to create a meal. Um, don't worry about it. We'll, we will drop off a good meal or ham, home prepared meal, whatever. The idea is it's this commitment to share. And it's what we see. So let's jump in and begin to take a look at kind of three elements, I think, and all within the context of asking the question, like, what is community? What is community? Uh, after that, we'll take a look at a couple other questions, like, um, how has community gone wrong? Thirdly, we'll take a look at how is community restored? And then ultimately, we'll just kind of finish with some questions of, like, what are some practical steps that we can take with in regard to the concept of community? So again, what is community? There's, I think, at least three components that play into what community is. All right, next slide. Number one is this idea of relationship. That community uh, involves relationship. All form of biblical community that we just read, the idea of giving of oneself, one's energy, one's, one's goods, it involves relationship. Um, to do that outside of a relationship um, is, is, doesn't work. You have to be within some level of working relationship. So kind of a phrase that I would put underneath that is united together around the person of Jesus. So it's really important to understand what drew the early church together? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Like, why did they do that? Why did they come together? Why did they devote themselves to one another? Why did they devote themselves and their goods to taking care of each other's needs? There's, there's simply one answer. I mean, there's all sorts of other, like, sub-answers you can throw into that. But one main answer, simple, is, is it's a person. Jesus. It wasn't a cause. It wasn't that someone had this great idea like, hey, let's come together and create a new society whereby we give away our stuff. Like, that was the result of the relationship. You understand that? They didn't come together and say, we, don't, we have a lot of time on our hands. Let's figure out some sort of activities that we can just keep ourselves busy with. They were like, Jesus is awesome. He's alive. He's risen. He loves us. They come together, and within the context of coming together, they begin to realize Oh, you have needs? Oh, I got needs. I got money. I got good. I got, you know, I, I, I got stuff to help you out. And you have all of this cooperation going on, connectedness happening, all centered around, first and foremost, a relationship. That's what the church was. That's, if, in other words, I would even say this. For the church to truly be the church today, it's not about population of activities, but churches can sometimes be guilty of having so much stuff going on that they lose sight of the fact that really, first and foremost, it's about relationships. It's about being together. It's about knowing each other. It's about caring for each other. Because, look, at the end of the day, you can be part of a community of people where there's a lot of stuff going on. And that's all hunky-dory as long as your life is doing great. But the moment things start going down in your life and you're not doing good, if you're being asked to be part of this stream of stuff and no one pauses to ask you, how are you doing? How are you feeling about the fact that you're, you know, someone just passed away? How are you feeling about the issues that you're facing that are hitting you? In the, like, how, how's that going right now? At some point, you will feel alienated. You'll get frustrated. And the activities no longer will satisfy like, because we're not wired for activities. We're wired for relationship. It's as simple as that. We are wired for relationship. And from relationship comes activities. Does that make sense? That's how the early church worked. They had lots of activities going on. Lots of stuff was happening. But first and foremost, it all was spontaneously generated out of the reality of, of Jesus, this one who is at the very center of it all. So I think pause. We always have to kind of ask and just 
you know, reflect upon what is driving us, what's uniting us. Is it Jesus? Is it just a cause? Is it a need to be needed? Is it self-affirmation? Is it, is it a person? Because at some point, how you answer that will really, in a long ways, depend or, or determine how far, how much juice, how much gas it's going it's to, how far you're going to go. Because a relationship with Christ oftentimes at some points can degenerate. And that's where we need to always go back and remind ourselves, that's right, it is about Jesus. Life is about our call, our hope, our church needs to be about a person, Christ. And it's what we see. It's about this relationship. So listen to what 1 John chapter 3, or 1 John 1, 3 says. It says, we have seen and we've heard and we've proclaimed to you so that you may have fellowship, so a word, koinonia, with us. So John is writing. He says, look, we, we want to have koinonia, fellowship, relationship with you. He says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus. So the point that John is saying is that, look, first and foremost, we have this relationship with God. God has done something for us. God has acted on our behalf. Um, and, and it's from that relationship that we have with God that now we are in relationship with each you. We connect with you. We love you. We give ourselves to you. We devote ourselves to you because of this relationship that was initiated first and foremost from, from God. So, again, first of all, all of this begins with the concept of relationship. So one final thing I'll say before I move on to the next one is that all relationships actually are, they either thrive or they, they languish based upon um, communication, all right? And this is true of any relationship, all right? Any type of relationship. It could be marriage, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Any relationship, um, even roommates. It's like if you don't have some form of good tools to be able to communicate with each other, at some point, your community, your uh, common unity will degenerate. You guys following so far? So here's some examples with that. Um, Sometimes when I'm counseling couples through challenges, and they might say something like, well, I realize we we don't really communicate well. Or we don't communicate. Like, our problem is a communication problem. We don't communicate. I always correct that. I'm like, no, that's actually not true. You are always communicating. Problem is, you may not be communicating the same language and or you may not be communicating successfully or good. Or the type of communication that you're giving is actually sending bad signals, bad messages. We are always, always, always communicating. So let me give you an example. If you came up to me afterwards and you're, like, chatting with me and you're sharing some, like, heavy-duty stuff that you're going through in life, I'm standing there and, and I'm like this. And I'm looking around and other people walking by and I'm like, what's up? And here you are, like, you're sitting right in front of me and I'm, like, saying hi to everybody and not giving you eye contact. At some point, you, you would begin to feel frustrated, angry, offended, as you should because even though I have not said one word, my communication has basically said you don't, you don't matter to me. I'm totally disinterested in you and your story. That's deeply offensive. That causes disunity, right? Brokenness, broken relationships. That's what happens from that. Does that make sense? You guys following? So the type of communication we have is really significant, really important. So how we communicate is all part of with, with regard to this. So in our relationship with God, like this is really important, but in our relationship with other people, so what happens oftentimes in life, I think there are many people that, you know, I mean, look, as you grow, you will learn how to communicate better. You, you have to. In other words, you, you have to at some point learn how to communicate. I mean, you can be 45 years old and not communicating well. In other words, everybody you talk to at some point 
ends up in a big argument and you're offended and you're, you know, everything is somebody else's fault. That's probably because you, you are, are a grown child. You've, you've never developed as a communicator. You've never developed. You've never really truly grown. Um, and so part of growing up, part of you becoming a functional adult, you have to learn how to communicate. Like you actually have to learn how to communicate. And what happens sometimes in the church is because we don't, we don't allow our hearts to enter into the process of growing and of maturing as, as communicators, as people who learn how to communicate with each other, we oftentimes get our toes stepped on. We get offended. And when we get offended, rather than communicating our offense in a kind way to the one who offended us, um, we just kind of stew on it. it we, we sit upon it. It percolates in our heart. We get frustrated. Every time we see that person, we're angry at them. Every time we see them, we want to avoid them. They walk in one side of the room. We walk in the other side of the room. At some point, you will alienate yourself from that individual, and this is what happens. Uh, if, if it's in the context of uh, marriage, you, you, you walk out, you divorce. If it's in the context of you know, a relationship, you walk out. If it's in the context of church, you find another church. Uh, because oftentimes it's, not, it's, it's a failure to learn how to truly communicate in a life-giving, life-generating way that brings forth wholeness and, and healing. And that's, we need that. We, every one of us needs that in order to have functional relationships. But the same is true with regard to to God and the work that God's doing within this whole thing that we're calling fellowship. Like, in order to do this well, we have to learn how to communicate with each other. So there's a whole lot more I can talk about this, but I'm not. I'm going to move on to the next one. Is, it involves partnership. Partnership. And what I would say with regard to this is that we are united together to glorify God by caring for one another. Partnership. That's what partnership is. We come together, we're united with the, with the main objective. And our objective is to glorify God by caring for one another. So for example, if you were to start a business with a partner, a business partner, um, you would have an objective. Like, what would be your goal as uh, one part of or one-fourth or whatever of a business partnership? Probably you would have some objective along the lines of providing a, either a good or a service to the general public, but then ultimately some level of profit for the profit sharers, right? Profit for the partners, I should say. Um, I mean, in other words, let's put it this way. Nobody starts a business and says, we want to file chapter 11. Like, that's our big goal. Like, nobody starts that way. Everybody starts a business and says, we hope this thing will turn a profit within some short amount of time, right? Ideally. Um, But the reality is, is that involved in the process of partnership is sort of this series of relationships. You cannot pull them apart. They're completely intertwined. So... For example, within a partnership, everyone within that partnership is equally sharing within the privileges and the responsibilities. Privileges and the responsibilities, the assets and the liabilities, the blessings and the burdens. All three of those things are basically equally shared. So, for example, um, it's one of the reasons why if, if, if you're a Christian, follow Jesus and you go on Facebook, and you see somebody who is also a professed Christian say something that is just absolutely embarrassing, like, no, why did they say that? It's so frustrating. Why would they do that? Why? Because what you're, what you're sharing in that moment is the liability, right? They said something, they spoke something, they acted out something in a way that's very disconnected to your understanding of the gospel, and, and you feel embarrassed. You are sharing in the liabilities of that. But look, as a family, that's what we do. But we, but we learn to pick up after each other. 
we learn how to carry each other's burdens. So if someone, you know, uh, leaves uh, some sort of a mess, uh, the body of Christ comes together and, and gently, if needs to be, rebukes or lovingly, kindly corrects, and then yet tries to pick up some of the pieces. And, and that's how we do it. That's what a partnership is. You come together and you carry each other. Uh, I almost sang like a YouTube line, um, but I'm not going to. But it's what we, we carry each other. We, we really, truly pick each other up, and we make sure that we are progressing together because that's what, uh, that's what this is all about. That's what relationship, fellowship is all about. It's carrying the burden. It's partnership. So what, you know, hypothetically, we can ask the question, what type of a partnership would it be, or how would you feel if one element of the partnership was taking all the income and all of the privileges and yet leaving all of the work and all the bills for you to be paid. At some point, you would feel frustrated and, and you want out of that partnership. That's one of the reasons why uh, if someone, is, for example, is constantly going on and they're constantly causing offenses and everybody else is having to pay the relational um, uh, you know, uh, expenses for their constant running in the mouth, the constant offenses, at some point, people get tired of that person. They're just like, we're tired of this guy being around. Constantly. And, and again, this is what, what changes that? Repentance. Repentance. For, for the person to be able to say, oh my gosh, I'm just, I didn't know I was doing that, or I, I wasn't aware to the, the level, to the extent. My actions, my words, my statements, my deeds, whatever it was, was offensive to you. So I'm, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that you were constantly having to pick up after my mess, or my trauma, or the issues that I was, I was bringing around, thank you, I'm, I'm sorry, I want to re-enter into that relationship. And that's, that's how the, the, the Bible describes relationships are, are healed. And through that repentance, you re-enter back into the relationship. So partnership is a really important one. Let, let me read a passage to you, I think that really kind of points this out really well, and I just kind of spend some time thinking about this. And we'll wrap this up really quickly here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-5, through five, this great passage Paul is writing to this group of Christians living in a city called Corinth, and he's writing about a situation that took place where there was a group of Christians living in a region called Macedonia. Um, They'd come to meet Jesus, and their lives were transformed by this resurrected uh, king. And their hearts, like the way Christians do, began to become overflowing with love and care for other people. And so they heard that there was another group of Christians that were in dire need. Um, they didn't have any money. They didn't have uh, money to pay their bills. There were creditors coming in, and they had needs. And so this, this community of Christians in Macedonia um, rises to the moment and, and acts in such the most amazing way. And so Paul, in writing this letter, is basically saying, I want to tell you a really, really cool story. It's about these Christians in Macedonia. Here's the story. He says, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to you among the churches in Macedonia. Just pause real quick and think about this. Paul says, I'm going to tell you about the grace of God that happened to these Christians in Macedonia. So right now, as we enter into the story, we might think, okay, we're expecting to hear about a bunch of people getting baptized. We're expected to hear a bunch of people, you know, who prayed the Jesus prayer or came forward at a, at a, at a crusade. We're expected to hear something spiritual, right? Like spiritual happen. That's not what Paul's going to unpack. It's, it's amazing. He goes, I want to tell you about the grace of God uh, upon the churches in Macedonia. He says, for in their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, and in their extreme poverty, they have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So again, just pause real quick and think about this. So Paul's writing that these churches, or this church in Macedonia, um, he, he puts in one sentence, two phrases that really, for the most part, in the context of our world, 
do not coexist ever in the same sentence. So, so let's do it again. Extra, uh, severe tests of affliction, abundance of joy. <laughs> Just think about that. When was the last time in our lives could we put these two phrases together in a sentence that describes our present day experience? Extreme or severe tests of affliction and abundance of joy. Apparently, it's possible. Apparently, it's possible to have circumstances, crises, acute situations happen in your life that are, that are defined as severe tests of affliction while simultaneously having this abundance of joy. These people were living it. And Paul says it's, it's incredible. It's the grace of God. Grace of God, the gift of God, showering upon these guys, not just upon them, but from them. It's like trickling off their back and bouncing onto everybody around. In other words, they're not just simply getting wet. Their wetness is causing everybody else to get wet, if that does not sound weird. But you get the idea that, that God is showering blessings upon them, and everyone else around them is being impacted by the blessings of God that they are themselves receiving. Is following? Then he goes on to say, they, in their own extreme poverty, they've overflowed in the wealth of generosity. Again, extreme poverty, extreme generosity. <laughs> okay, my, 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 my experience of this um, was uh, trips to El Salvador. I had gone to El Salvador like eight times, and there's a season I was going there a lot. I'd been in a while. I want to go back really bad, um, but one of these days it might happen. I'm not sure when. Um, but one of the things that's amazing is that a lot of the Salvadorians are extremely, extremely poor. And yet when you go to their church services or you meet with them or they welcome you into their house, they are so generous. They're bringing out pupusas and they're bringing out all sorts of incredible food that they made, like, like chicken foot soup. I'm not kidding. It's a thing. And they're just so proud to give you this like soup from this massive cauldron of a chopped up chicken and all sorts of stuff that they just gather through. And they are so delighted to shower blessings upon you. And you're just like, oh my gosh, you guys don't have anything. I have, I have lots of clothes and you guys worn the same thing for the past week. I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't deserve this. I'm so humbled and honored and blessed to receive from you. Like this, this is what he's saying. Paul's like, I'm blown away by the grace of God, the gift of God, Shout upon these people, even though they are in extreme poverty, they are overflowing with mind-blowing generosity. So much so that Paul goes on in his own little testimony. He says, for, the, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, they gave of their own accord. So Paul said, look, they, they gave this initial gift, but they're like, look, we want to give more. Like, these people have needs, we want to give more. Paul says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part, koinos, that's the word, phrase, Taking part is koinos. They're saying, we want to be part of this fellowship. We want to give. This is what fellowship is. This is what community is. We want to give to people we've never even seen before. Because God, who we've never seen, has given so generously to us. And they're begging Paul. Like, Paul, please let us give. Like, okay, look. um, our, Our church has never gotten to that level. Like, people are like, Brian, please, we want to give more to Calvary Sloan. More, more. Can we give more? Like, like it's, it's oftentimes like, you guys, let's, we can give, and it might be really cool. Help us do what we want to do. But this Paul saying that these people are giving to the point where I'm telling them no, and they're like, no, we want to keep giving. Paul's like blown away because of all the circumstances that he described. He says, this is what it means to be partakers of fellowship, fellowship. 
as it were, to relief of the saints. He says they gave of themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God and then to us by serving our needs. So again, this, what does fellowship mean? It, it means this radical sense of partnership, of commitment to others. And finally, let's wrap this up, is it involves uh, stewardship. Stewardship. The idea of stewardship is, is uh, pretty simple, and it's, it's oftentimes used many, many times throughout the Bible, and I would even say it probably starts, Genesis chapter 1, it starts there, that God created Adam and Eve, and created them, and he gives, he, God created this incredible world that's a life-producing, life-generating world. In fact, in other words, if you do nothing on planet Earth, guess what will happen? Planet Earth will create stuff. You know that? It's amazing. Uh, if, if you don't believe me, just use your backyard as a litmus test. If you do nothing in your backyard, stuff will spontaneously grow. I mean, you, the weeds will grow everywhere. Um, things will just grow. Why? Because how God created this generating, life-creating earth. It's a gift from God. God gave it to Adam and Eve. He says, I'm giving it to you. Steward it well. You will be co-creators. You will be workers in this garden that I'm gifting to you. But Adam and Eve usurped that authority took it upon themselves, distrusted God, and rather than being stewards of God's creation, they gave their heart and minds and thoughts and souls to other things. And that was, that was really the breakdown of all this. We'll get to that in just a second. But in short, a steward is one who manages the property of another. That's what a steward is, as simple as that. A steward is one who manages the property of another. Every one of you guys have, have gifts and abilities and talents and things that, that, you, that you enjoy in your life right now, some of you are like enjoying them. And they're actually creating money for you. They're creating popularity for you. They're creating um, likes on Instagram. They're creating multiple uh, amounts of people following you on your social media accounts. It, just because of something that you did not earn, it was given to you. Maybe you're an artist. Maybe you're a musician. I mean, again, obviously, something like a musicianship, you, it takes a lot of work and effort to do it. But some people are just born naturally and are really, really good. Some of you have really good voices. Uh, and, and, yes, you work on it. It's a muscle you train. But at the end of the day, it's like, like some of us are just born with it. Some of you have minds that are so technologically savvy. Like, like the way that you think, the way that you're able to calculate numbers, the way that you're able to... Think in sequences, the way that you are able to stack information and data and somehow sort it out and create reasonable, logical ways of reconfiguring and thinking about it. How, where did you get that? God. God, he gave it to you. It's a gift. See, here's, here's a shocking thing. Um, everything that we have, it's on loan. It's on loan from God. And in, in an instant, it, it can be lost. Someone who's got good looks, like, like you, you may have been born with that, you may have enjoyed that, so you may have been the person in the third grade that, that everybody wanted to be like, but everybody else kind of quietly like hated, like, why are they so good looking, you know? And like, you had all the friends, and, and the reality is um, that these are things that you just had given to you. And all of these things in an instant can be taken away. And again, without being morbid, like you can be in an accident, something bad can happen, some sort of crippling disease can fall upon you, again, without being morbid. But the fact is, these things sometimes can, in an instant, be in our hands, be in our grip, be in our position, be in our usage, and then next, we don't have access to them. So the question is, knowing that everything we have is a gift from God, how how do we steward it? Like, how do we actually use it in a way to... uh, 
for the benefit of other people. Like, that's what stewardship is. That's what we see the word fellowship implying. So with that, let's, let's take a look at the passage. Acts 2, 42. It says, they devote themselves to the fellowship. Um, and he's going to begin to unpack for us. Like, what, what, what is the fellowship? So if you're kind of wondering, like, what does it mean to be fellowship? Be in fellowship. Be part of this fellowship in the early church. He's going to actually answer that question for us. In verse 44, it says, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. So our word again, konos, in common. There's fellowship. They were in fellowship. It's all part of it. And he says, again, he's going to unpack, like, what does it mean to have all things in common? He says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in homes, and they received their food and glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is how the church worked. They, they were stewards with what God had. They, they saw blessing as not a means to somehow satisfy the rapacious appetite for greediness. They, they saw God's generosity as a means to be redistributed, to bring blessing and to bring leverage upon other people's lives, to lift them up, to help them up, take care of them. That if, like, if I, I mean, in simple ways, like if I got three coats and someone in the church has, has none, and ah, I, can, I can give them a coat. Or in the, in, I mean, it was in profound ways. Now, let me just say this. A lot of people look at this passage, and you're like, well, see, this is, this is a really good, strong argument to somehow get back into communal living. Um, and throughout, like, the 70s, you know, there's these movements of, like, we need communal living because the first church, that's what they did. They sold everything, had it all in common. And, and like, that sounds like a great utilitarian or utopian, I should say, idea. Um, at some point, it, it fails. And just to be simple and, and, and practical, I, I, look, we have a house. We've opened up a lot. Um, I don't want you all living in my house with me. Like, like I, I value my privacy, to be honest with you. Like, but, but the fact is, is the, I think the heart of what he's trying to drive at is do we have this mentality that says we're aware, we're alert to other people's needs, and we, when we're made aware of those things, we want to help out. We genuinely want to help out. Look, this is amazing because here, here's what happened in the early church. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, we're actually told that this community of people literally turn the world upside down. So, so a world that's much like our world, which is you know, filled with, with war, militaristic might, power, uh, uh, acts and displays of, of, of strength from Rome, top-down mentality, um, fear, all of these things, lots of sex. I mean, I mean, Roman Empire was filled with all forms of, of depravity and sexuality, gone askew, all of this type of stuff. But what we're told in the book of Acts is that these Christians, these followers of Jesus, these disciples, turn the world upside down. Here's a shocking thing. They turn the world upside down without one vote, one sword, or one violent revolt. Did you catch that? They didn't vote. <laughs> they didn't have a sword. And there were no violent standoffs. How? How did they turn the world upside down? This. Because when the world saw people like truly coming together and loving each other and truly taking care of each other's needs, truly loving neighbor, truly loving God, they were shocked. Because it tapped into his narrative that everybody wants, very few believe even exists, but the gospel announces and says it's true and it's breaking in. We have a God that has done the miraculous brings me to the final things. What's gone awry? Like, how, how is community, like, falling apart? Here's a couple quick things, and we'll wrap this up. Um, one, the way I would look at it, what, how has community gone wrong? In just simple words, is 
betrayal, distrust, guilt, shame, selfishness, all of these things. Betrayal, you know, Adam and Eve turn their back on God. Adam turns his back on his wife and their sons carry on the same tradition. Um, Cain betrays Abel and kills him. And then just kind of enters into this like long, dark, nasty storyline that looks like our six o'clock news of, of just all humanity being infected. And this is where First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter three just kind of describes in the latter days people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of God, or lovers of money, look proud, arrogant, abusive, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and the idea is that that all of these things contribute, they play into, they are all community breakers, all of them. Uh, guilt and shame. Um, you know, distress oftentimes comes as a result of betrayal. Like, you, you, your heart's raw. You don't feel like you can trust somebody, somebody that you did trust at one point. You allowed in your heart. You allowed to speak to you. They broke that trust, and now you, don't, you can't trust them anymore. Um, guilt and shame. Uh, Brene Brown, she's an uh, author, writer, TED speaker. She has this great way of distinguishing the difference between guilt and shame. She says, guilt is oftentimes associated with saying, I, I, I did something bad. I did something dirty. Shame is basically owning it, saying, I am somebody bad. I am somebody dirty. And, and the question is, is how, do we, how do we break out of this? Because all those things, the guilt, the shame, the betrayal, the distrust, the selfishness, all these things play into one consistent, ongoing, almost seems like a never-ending narrative that defines our world. And it's this broken community. But here's the beautiful thing, is that the gospel is all about God repairing that, God fixing that. And the question is how? And the last question is, is how is community ultimately restored? Well, basically, in short, it's this question of what is salvation? Like, in short, like, what, what, what did God do? Like, what does salvation mean? What are we saved from? What does salvation accomplish? In short, it's this. It's God reaching out and sharing all that he is with us, and to put it in another way, the slide, if you can show that real quick, there you go. Um, if, if I can say this without sounding trite or minimalistic, if I can put it this way, it's, it's God who has made this ultimate commitment for him to share all of his life, all of his energy, all that he is, all of his attention, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, which is the life force of God, and all this stuff, his inheritance, he gives us all these things are in Christ Jesus. That's what salvation is. It's God saying, I'm not going to abandon you. You, you. you have betrayed me, humanity. Like you have, rather than partnering with me, rather than trusting me as a good father, as Yahweh, you have turned your back on me. You've entered into distrust. You have broken relationship. You have worshiped false gods. You've treated your brother and your sister in other human beings in an unjust fashion. And all of us are part of this problem. And yet God says, but here's the deal. I will enter into your brokenness into your shame. I will take it upon myself. I will lift your guilt, your shame, your sin, your brokenness, and I will allow it to do to me what it will ultimately do to you, which is break you. You will come undone. That's by definition the cross. It's in the cross we see God making the ultimate commitment to give his life, his energy, his stuff to you. Look, to the the degree that you believe that, you see that? It will change you. It will change you to become Jesus people. It will change you to become people that says, my life is drawn to not a cause, not even necessarily a church, or not necessarily even an activity, but to a person, to Jesus. And as we come together around Jesus, we're going to realize there's a bunch of other persons there that bear his image. 
some more shattered in bearing that image than others. But we all bear his image, and we learn how to do life with each other side by side. So what does that look like for us as a church? What does that look like for us as a church? Um, let, me, let, me, let me go back real quick and just read this quick little passage, uh, 2 Peter, how he describes um, how we are restored. He says this in verse 4. I'll just jump down to the last part. He says, And because of his glory and his excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share. There's a word, koinos, koinonios, to share in his divine nature. That God, think about this. Uh, if, if, if koinonios, uh, if we're, you and I are to have true koinonios, you and me, we sit down and you come to my house, I make dinner for you, which is me giving me to you, some of my food, you share with me some of your heart issues and your, tra- your, your life. You, you share private details of your life that maybe you don't just go around and share with the breeze at, at Starbucks or at you know, Scout Coffee or whatever, but you start divulging like, like your stuff, your history, and then I share more about my life. We are having community. You, we're connecting on a deeper human level, and you're partaking of my food, you're living in my space, you're enjoying the climate of my house, the culture of my house. Like, on, think about this on the level of what God has done for us. God has done that for you. God says, I've opened my heart up in its entirety to you, for you to come in, to be welcomed, not avoided, not shunned, not, not accused, not abandoned, not mocked, not mistreated, but welcomed. To the degree that you see that, that, that will change your life. That, that is, by definition, sharing in the divine nature. God saying, I will open up all that I am for you to have it all. It's yours. All that I am, I share joyfully, gladly with you. So, in closing, what, what does this mean for us as a church, like as a local community? I, I think, first of all, I think it means us learning how to devote ourselves to, to one another within community. Um, we, we have community groups. That's what we call them. And they're literally called community groups for that purpose, to say, let's have fellowship. And we can call them fellowship groups or community groups, but we just you know, we call them community groups. But the idea is the same, like to come together, to share life. And it's in these community groups that people's lives are literally are repaired, put back together again. It's in these community groups on a smaller community level that when people are going through tough stuff or challenging th- situations or the loss of money or, or being uh, you know, side-swiped by some sort of gnarly situation in their life, that it's in these contexts that they're able to share, that they're able to receive people come around them, gather around them and say, well, let's bring meals to you. Let's help you out. Let's figure out ways to raise money so that you can pay your rent. Let's do what we can to get you a new car. Let's figure out a way w- that you can have your needs practically taken care of. In other words, it is really this profound way in which the church is able to be the church. It's awesome. Uh, another way, I think, is on a, on a bigger, broader level, is for us learning to be open to being a generous group of people, to truly being generous. And I think what this could look like, where we can all kind of grow in, is, is, is to be generous with, with Calvary Southern, to give, to give, to be part of the mission of what's going on here. Um, the, the fact is, I think over the past several years, is there's really only been a very, very small amount of people that actually give on a, on, on a very bigger level within our church. I think maybe the statistics are between 8% to 10% of, of people in Calvary Slow give throughout the whole year anything more than $250 to contribute to the mission. Now, the point is, I would just say that is for all of us, 
Um, for some of us, you know, we're still at our beginning phase of our faith, and it might kind of sound shocking to you, like, giving, what would I ever give? Um, but again, the point that I would make is that for us to do what we do, like, it costs, costs money, as simple as that. You know, like, we have a whole bunch of people on staff that we live extremely modestly. Nobody drives nice cars or wears fancy clothes. We live very modestly. And, and at the end of the day, we, our, our main job is to just try to create disciples. And we have a place like this that we can meet. We can have lights on. We can gather on a wet, raining day, and it's cold outside. We can gather in here and have all, all this stuff costs money. And all of this is actually taken care of by people contributing, saying, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'm, I'm part of this. I, I trust what's, what God's doing here. I believe. I trust what God's up to, and I want to join and be part of that. Now, for some of you who have never given, it may be just an opportunity for you to think about it. Like, pray. That's all I would say. It's like, again, there's never any, any, any guilt or shame. Don't hear that at all, but just for you to think about it. For some of you, you don't have any money. It's like, you're like, you're like the people in, in Macedonia. You are in extreme poverty. <laughs> um, but the, the reality is something for you to pray about and think about. Maybe you've never given ever in your Christian experience. You've been a Christian for a long time. You've never even got around to think about that. This may be a time for you to begin to think about it. Just pray about it. Like, God, what would that look like for me? And, and again, um, it's going to look differently for every one of us. Um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's about us seeing what God is up to and saying, I'm, I want in. I want to be part of what God's doing. And I'm going to join in. I don't want to just put my words there. I want to put my life there. It is this complete commitment of all that we are, all that we have, all of our energy to the work of God and God's people. So last thing is how do we do this? Uh, it, it involves a heart that is full of trust. We trust. That's a big ask, or a liability that most of us are not willing to engage in because we have been burned by people in the past, and if you have ever been burned by other churches in the past or the leaders in the past, I get it. For some of you, you just want to be a fly on the wall for some length of time here, and that's fine. We want to be able to stay, be a safe place where you can just learn, grow, hear the gospel, let it repair, and heal your heart. It's fine. But our hope is that you don't remain there forever because you need to grow. Like, Jesus loves you so much. He wants to, to help you grow. So remain there. Stay there as long as you need. But at some point, realize there, there are times to transition and grow. But the point that I would make is this, is that trust is this crucial element. To trust means to become vulnerable. And vulnerability is something very painful that we oftentimes enter into. So I'm going to finish. I'm going to read a quote for you uh, from C.S. Lewis, which is just awesome. Maybe some of you have heard it before. I'll have the worship team come on up, and we'll wrap it up. And uh, just, just listen to this quote. Just listen to this quote. It's this quote on, on vulnerability. Um, it's out of his book called The Four Loves. To love it all is to become or to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly even broken. If you want to make sure keep it, uh, of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies, little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, unpenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. In the reality, this is the most amazing picture of our God. What did it cost our God to love us? What's the most patently frightening form of vulnerability you can imagine? Being naked in front of an audience. Think of the cross. Stripped of his clothes. He hung. He didn't need to. He chose to. Why? 
Because he knew in order to love, love involves relationship. Relationship involves forgiveness. Forgiveness involves absorption. Absorption involves pain. The cross is excruciating pain. Our God is honorable. To the degree that you see that and that warms your heart, that changes your heart, that transforms the fundamental barriers that you've established in your heart, you will be free because the gospel set you free. I invite you to enter into that, into that story. The gospel is always an invitation to turn away from narratives that degenerate and destroy and alienate and ruin and to come into life. God is life. Come to God.